first scripture for today is from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The second passage is Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is the word of the Lord. So as we transition in, uh, Paul ended last week, uh, or I ended reading his verse at the end of Colossians um, uh, three seventeen, that basically said, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So hopefully we just did that, giving thanks for all that he's done. But what Paul is talking about is this attitude that's supposed to kind of saturate our thinking. And it's not just, I'm going to be spiritual in this moment. It is a a life rhythm of worship that we're to develop, where we're devoting all of our members of our body, um, all of our mind and all of our heart to worshiping God. Um, And it's it's a lifestyle of repentance, not a moment but a lifestyle where you are, you are holding tightly to the cross, you are depending upon the Spirit to fight against that sinful flesh that rears its ugly head and fighting for joy in Christ and putting on Christ. And what I love about Paul is that he doesn't just stay in theology land. Okay, He doesn't stay in the world of just ethereal, uh, really big ideas. As he begins to turn here in Colossians, he brings theology of Christ a real true biblical understanding of who Christ is and what he does and applies it to real life. Because if theology never gets there, what's the point? And I think there's a little bit of a contrast with the false teachers who are in Colossae. And these false teachers are the guys who have all the spiritual rules, they have all of the religious traditions and the verses they can throw down and the heavenly experiences, but it doesn't seem like any of those things ever get them down to earth. Like, how does that really work out in real life in uh, the realness of the hardness of life. And it's when, you know, these guys have these great convictions about spiritual truths, but nothing that really matters to the point where you begin to see that affect their life. Uh, the, the guys with all the answers and really messed up families and messed up kids and messed up everything, but they've got their theology. Um, Paul is going to take the gospel here, and he's going to take it beyond the walls, if you will, of spirituality, beyond the walls of, of the church gathering only, and really take it personal. And he, and he starts driving into, let's apply what you know about Jesus to our families. Um, the next few verses, 17 through about 22, uh, speak about family, this, this mystery of family. And it speaks about wives, it speaks about husbands, it speaks about children and parenting. And they're really, again, all part, it's hard to just take one at a time, but we have to. They're all part of one message. It's about experiencing the fullness of Christ in what God calls family. Now, I want us to be very careful because there's a tendency, even in evangelical Christianity, to dismiss what Paul writes here and some of his very specific instructions as just culturally kind of archaic and, and personally irrelevant. That's not for me. It's not for our time. Um, please know that creation began with a very specific divine order to things. And sin uh, came and deformed that. There was a certain order to all the relationships we have with one another, with God, with creation. And sin deformed all those relationships. And Jesus is restoring that order. He's restoring that, that which is supposed to be God's design for relationships. And I think it's interesting that after two and a half chapters of of deep theology, of talking about who Christ is, of talking about what Christ did and what the cross meant, he gets specific about family. It's very practical. It's, It's awkward almost as you read. And in particular, he begins by addressing how the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the gospel restores, in particular, the role of the woman in a marriage relationship. But that doesn't mean that this sermon is just for women. And all you guys were like, you know, we really got to get to church early today, honey, for like the first time in months, right? It's not just for women. In fact, it's, it's for 
women, for men, for young, for old, for married, for single, uh, even for children, to understand exactly what God intends for the bride. Because a lot of you have had some really cruddy examples of husbands and wives, of moms and dads. I understand that. Now, women, it's going to feel like this is directed to you, so this day for you is your fight for humility. That's where your fight is going to be today. And men, as you are fighting the compulsion to elbow your wife or say, hey, write this down, right? This is you're going to be your fight for compassion. This is where you're fighting to put on the compassion of Christ because your fight for humility is going to come next week. And it's going to be a doozy, okay? But Paul wrote in Philemon 8, which is a, a book he actually wrote the same time as this one. In fact, I think the same guy carried the letters to these people. He says this, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So in other words, ladies in particular, I'm not scared to tell you like it is. I'm not scared to say, this is what God's word says, obey. But I want very hard to try to be sensitive to the reality that it's very difficult to get enthusiastic about the word submit in our culture or in your personal experience. And when you start a service with reading from Colossians and Ephesians where submit seems to be you know, every other word, I realize that in a lot of us that brings up some negative feelings, and so I want to be sensitive to that. It seems like a man, however, can barely whisper the word submission today and not be demonized as a chauvinist or as a Neanderthal or worse. I'm not sure what worse would be, but it's something bad, right? <laughs> and many a pastor, and I will say rightly so, has probably been crucified for strong-handed, biblically accurate sermons about submission that has been devoid of the compassion of Christ. And so I, for, for what I can, I say forgive pastors for doing that. Um, I will try very hard not to do that, uh, but I don't mind being crucified as long as I am speaking the words of Christ in a Christ-like way, and that's my hope. Um, so let me talk gently but frankly about the big bad S word, submission. And usually when, when someone, this happens to all of us, when we come across an idea in the Bible or a word we don't like, but we feel obligated to agree with it, because God said it, we play uh, kind of word yoga gymnastics in our minds and we begin this redefinition process to make it a little more agreeable to ourselves. So let me begin by telling you exactly what I believe the word means and then coloring it because I'm going to make like an outline and you're going to go, that's really ugly until maybe hopefully I color it in for you. The word submission means to take a subordinate role specifically in relation to another person. So we're not mincing words. You know exactly what I'm talking about when I say this. Now, submission is not exclusive to women in marriage. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, which is part of the passage that was read, Ephesians and Colossians, if you were to put them together, which I'm sure you would love to do in your spare time, um, you would see that there's a lot of overlap in what they wrote because they were probably written at the same time. I mean, almost like verbatim. And so Ephesians 21 does say that mutual submission out of reverence for Jesus should characterize all Christians. Okay, so it's not just this particular relationship. It's all Christians are to be mutually submissive to one another in honor of Christ. And as we demonstrate meekness to one another, as we demonstrate grace and patience and forgiveness with one another, that does not mean that we don't submit to the God-given authorities in our lives. God has placed many authorities in our lives, and submission to authority, be it God, be it parents, be it government, uh, is a Christian virtue as well. We can't forget that. It's like, how does that tension work together? Well, it is tense, it's a little mysterious. The question for us as we talk about the marriage relationship is, is there an authority in the marriage relationship? 
So Ephesians 5, which was the other passage that was read, says this in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So as Paul says that a husband is the head of a wife, not should be. So I don't necessarily charge, though I will in some sense tomorrow, I mean, next week, oh, you, need to, you need to be the head of your No, you are. You're either a bad one or a good one, quite frankly. But men are the head of the home, head of this marriage relationship. And this idea of head or subjugation, if you will, Wayne Grudem, who's a theologian, was really um, dedicated to figuring out what this meant. And a lot of people will say, well, the head doesn't actually mean authority. It's you know, more of like a shared thing. And so he searched what, what amounted to about 2,300 uses of the same word in ancient Greek literature. And he just determined that every instance that it's used is always used in the sense of one's authority over another. Now, I haven't searched 2,300, but that seems like a lot to me to give a pretty good picture of what it is. So the husband, not the man, okay? The husband is, in some sense, authoritative over his bride, not the woman, right? This isn't a, a sermon about, well, all men are authoritative over all women. Eh, wrong, sinful, broken, not correct. We're talking about in the marriage relationship, and the husband is, in some sense, well, hopefully I'll explain that, authoritative over his bride, now, the question that always comes up is, has it always been this way? Isn't this authority structure, this submission, this idea from the fall? Isn't this this response to sin and, and what we have to work with now that things are all broken? Well, great question. In order to understand submission biblically, we have to go back to the beginning, which we should probably reference Genesis 1, 2, and 3 often in understanding God's design for things. And so if we look at Genesis 1 and 2, I'll read some verses there about the creation of man. In Genesis 1, it says this in verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping, creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God later says in Genesis 2, verse 18, it kind of gives a, a, a second telling with a little more detail of that, of that sixth day. So it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so what does God do? Well, he makes all kinds of animals, and he brings all these animals to Adam. And Adam is given the authority to name all these animals. And so he names all these animals. I'm always curious what he called them, because I'm pretty sure he wasn't like a orangutan elephant, you know, was... Maybe it like clicking sounds like, you know, who knows? I think it'd be interesting to know what he actually called it. But one of the, no, none of the, the things that came to him, the animals that came to him, God said were suited to him. They didn't fit him as a helpmate. And so God created another person, another human, whom Adam named woman, and then he later, after the fall, named her Eve. In Genesis 2.22, it says about her creation that puts the boy to sleep, Adam, and the rib, takes his rib out. It says, a rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and brought her to man like a father bringing, I believe, his daughter to give to um, her husband. So we learn a few things from these passages, and this sets the stage for what we're talking about. As ladies, you're fighting against, I really don't like this word. Let me just clarify the truth of God in the way things are. First of all, we learn that men and women were created and are created equal. That's huge. Um, God said that both male and female were created in His image, means they both equally and uniquely bear the image of God. And I think it's also significant, but some people maybe think it's silly, that, that Eve was created out of His side. And I think if we forget that, um, we lose that sense of mutual dependence we lose that sense of um, uh, companionship that, um, that kind of symbolizes for us. We also learn that men and women were created to be different. 
In other words, just because they were created equal doesn't mean they were created the same. Equality does not mean sameness. And men and women are are beautifully different, wonderfully different. They're not created with the same responsibilities. They're not created with the same roles. They're not even created with the same responses, of which we know very well, right? We know that men and women communicate differently, think differently, and it is a mystery how women think, and I understand clearly how men think, and for me it's very confusing, but they're different, okay? Now, Adam was created first. Adam was charged to lead the effort to work the garden, to build, and to subdue the world. Adam was given the authority to name creation, including Eve. Adam led Eve in the ways of God. Adam was to provide for Eve in the garden. Adam represented Eve before God. And Adam was responsible for teaching, for caring, and for cultivating Eve physically, emotionally, and spiritually. It wasn't the other way around. Now, it didn't mean she didn't have any responsibilities. She had a very specific role. Women were created to help man in his work. And I realize that's not a very popular thing to say. Um, the woman was made to help man in his work. And, again, we're talking about a marital relationship. That's important. Now, she was to follow his lead. She supported his work. She received his love, and she made beautiful what he built. I always like to say that men were charged to create order out of chaos, and the women were charged to create beauty out of that order. And if you've ever seen a man by himself, he could organize and build a lot of stuff, but it looks pretty nasty without a woman's, quote, touch. Okay? That's a very simplistic way, but I think it's also somewhat meaningful. But the word for helper in the Hebrew is a word that means helper like unto God. But that's not often how we hear that. A lot of times, men and women wrongly think secretary or sidekick. Like, I'm Batman, you're my Robin, and no one wants to be Robin because his costume's stupid and he doesn't do much, okay? Now, the truth is, that's not what it means. In fact, the same word, helper, uh, it's intended, first of all, God intended, I believe, to give a compliment to women. And the word in Psalm 115, verse 9, is used of God himself. And it says, O Israel, trust in the Lord, for he is their helper. And so the term in Scripture is always used to describe someone who brings significant help, and often as someone who delivers another from some great dilemma, which my bride has done many a time for me. Now, the ancient Jew would have viewed the woman then and her description as a helpmate as a godlike gift from God to help man, man be and do what he could not be or do alone. That was the intention. Now, according to Genesis then, and according to what I think is Ephesians 5, when you see uh, the church being compared to this relationship, we see that the idea of order, the idea of, of authority, if you will, in this marriage relationship was not a result of the fall. It was part of God's creative plan, as was and is the church. So before the fall, for many years, we don't know how many, Adam and Eve existed in harmony. Adam led Eve, Eve followed, and it was a natural, and it was a fruitful, and it was a joyful, fulfilling relationship. Then Genesis 3 happens, and sin enters the world by man's disobedience, Adam's disobedience. And what came from the fall was a couple things. One was man's reluctance to lead and work because we find out it was hard and leadership is hard. So he often decides not to. And what also came for women was a new disdain for following. That's what came with sin. A disdain for submission And it was made easier to to dislike because of man's failure to lead. Now, Genesis 3.16, as God is laying out the consequences of sin to the serpent and to the woman and to the man, Genesis 3.16, he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And I still remember my bride, I think the first time she had a child, 
screaming out in the midst of a contraction, I hate you, Eve. Okay, and it was like, hey, that's theologically correct, so it's awesome. But it reminded me of like, what? Oh, yeah, all right, that wasn't the way it was supposed to be, which you imagine, like, I wonder what it was supposed to be. Um, But the last thing he says is, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And what the sense is, this sin brought in conflict between the husband and wife. A tension between his rulership, whether he's going to abuse it, and, and her following of it, it wasn't going to be harmonious or peaceful. For him, leadership was going to be work, and it was going to be hard. God said, your work's now going to be hard. And for her, being led would be hard. And I believe for, for brides, for wives, this remains the greatest fight for women in their sinful flesh, in their marriages, made especially difficult, but not excusable. Made especially difficult, but not excusable, by men's failure to love. See, submission to a husband is, is already difficult. And then you have thousands of years where millions of men have abandoned and abdicated and abused their leadership. And there's a history, a sadly full, colorful history of men's silence, of men's pride, of men's abuse. And a lot of it, quite frankly, comes from the religious, evangelical Christian world. And it makes submission completely repulsive. I grant that. Not as an excuse to not obey God, but as a certain understanding of why it would be even difficult to submit. So instead of bringing couples together, which I believe submission is supposed to do, the idea of order in relationships, in marriage, it ends up polarizing them and making them enemies. And what happens is, because it's so hard to figure out the submission piece, because I'm coming to the table, two sinners come together, I got my baggage, I got my baggage, I have my bad examples, you have your bad examples, I have culture telling me this, you have culture. These two people come together, and they go, you know what, Uh, let's just figure out a better way. And so instead of embracing God's design, they reject what feels like indentured service or prison, and they adopt some earthly, worldly version. And when you adopt any earthly or worldly version, a definition that the world, that's more convenient, um, easier to understand, doesn't require as much sacrifice, what happens is that even if it has less, quote, conflict, it'll eventually go from bad to worse. And what happens is she decides in her mind, you know what, I... I can't and won't respect or follow this guy because he isn't respectable and he's a little lost and kind of incompetent. And he sits in silence or absence or is just flat out unloving. And because now he feels disrespected and she doesn't feel unloved, she doesn't feel loved, he begins to um, act like the juvenile Neanderthal that he's being treated like and treats her like a second, second class citizen. And so begins the cycle. And then it gets worse and worse, and they're both going, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And that's probably the case in the community that that Paul is writing to. This is about the same time, if you uh, recall, Jesus spoke about uh, marriage, and he talked about adultery and divorce and those kind of things. And what he was actually addressing in particular was not all reasons for divorce, but a particular newfound um, movement, if you will, in the Jewish community where they were having no-fault divorces and they could divorce their wives for any reason they wanted. Wasn't right, wasn't good, it was very wrong, but the women had really very little rights in that, in a Jewish system that provided them a lot more rights than that, but they had begun to pervert it. Uh, wasn't much different than the Greco-Roman society that was uh, pretty uh, cruel, if you will, to women. Uh, one commentator described that a respectable woman lived a life restricted physically in every other way to the home, and she basically lived a life of complete servitude and often seclusion and chastity, while the husband just enjoyed freedom and privilege and promiscuity. And that's what culture said was okay. 
But see, everything changed with Jesus, even before the cross. If you see Jesus' interaction with women, it even shocks his own disciples. Because he elevates women. He respects women. He engages with women. He appreciates women. And I believe he shows us clearly what the kingdom is supposed to look like. And the gospel is the reason, I think, that Paul begins to address women before men. It's an interesting way, because it seems like husbands are always addressed first, but women are addressed in Colossians here first, and it's not because the women are struggling worse than the men to, you know, fulfill their roles. What it is, is because the women in particular, because of the gospel, were liberated in a very great way, comparatively speaking, to the men. See, the gospel transformed everything. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 says, Because of the gospel, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you're all one in Christ. See, the the gospel reestablished the equality of men and women that God intended. The validation and value of women to say you are special, you are unique, and you are awesome. And the fact that Paul even addresses women directly in his letter is indicative of that attitude. of that renewed identity. But the fact that he addresses them as well is evidence of the effort to make sure that their newfound freedom doesn't become excuse to be, I'm going to liberate myself right away from God's actual design. I'm one in Christ. I'm free in Christ. I'm new in Christ. Who are you? Like, Well, that's not mean that God's design as it ought to be should not be lived out. So submission is not cultural. It's not part of the fall. I believe it's part of God's design for the family. And the gospel restores or begins to restore that design so that in Christ you experience the fullness of what family is supposed to be. Just as you'd experience the fullness of Christ, of what it means to be human, it extends into family. And we don't our culture and our traditions and all the things we have just in our flesh fight against believing that. That this is actually a fuller, more content, more joyful, complete way to live because it's the way God designed it. We don't see that fullness is actually there. But in Colossians 3 and in the passage in Ephesians 5, we see that Paul charges wives to submit to their husbands, quote, as is fitting in the Lord. And also in Ephesians 5 is as to the Lord. Okay, that's huge. We've been talking about putting on Christ. We're talking about living in Him, walking in Him, all these things. And now he says, do this as is fitting in the Lord. So these statements qualify what your motivation is for obedience to this command, which is really the same for any command. Biblical submission is not just simply a good idea. It is what is characteristic, at least a bride, of someone who is putting on Christ. That's what it is. Submission is the putting on of Christ, of of accessing, if you will, of having that image of you, of God, as you say, renewed in you. And I've said that Jesus is not only the motivation... We've learned he's also the means by which it's accomplished. He's also the model. Consider for a second, especially you wives who are just kicking against this, you ladies who are kicking against this, I'm never going to marry a man who tossed me to smit. Okay, just think about it for a second. Because usually what happens in that, that piece of I'm never going to submit is the because I'm entitled to, I deserve this, I am awesome. Not that you say you're awesome, but it's pretty much what's being said. Consider for a second How awesome Christ is. How incredible as the creator, the creator of all things, the ruler of all things, the sustainer of all things, the recreator of all things, the reconciler of all things, how he submitted to the Father. So the minute you say, well, I don't have to submit, be very careful. Because your creator took a position of submission. 
And so we see he didn't lose anything in terms of the fullness of God in doing that. But what we see very clearly that in Christ, equality and submission can coexist. They can. It's in Corinthians chapter 11 of the first letter of Corinthians. It says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. See, Jesus has submitted and humbled himself in a way infinitely more great than you ever could or will. He is not just our motivation or means. He is the model of that. So we dare not say, ladies, well, I just can't submit. I should. The greatest of all beings, the infinite God himself, acted in a way that we ought to act. Now, that's the, the what, if you will, and, and the why of submission. Now I want to get very specific about, okay, what does this look like in real life? Because there's some misunderstandings there. What's the how? The how is very important because there's a lot of misconceptions even about biblical submission that's motivated rightly. And men, let me just warn you, this is not the time to squeeze your wife's thigh or to give her a little nudge or to hand her the pen, but it's the opportunity for you to begin in your mind to pray for her, to be compassionate toward her. And on a side note, husbands, or you future husbands, don't you ever, ever demand submission. The moment you feel those words coming from your lips, know that you have lost and you're way behind in the race. If you are at a place where you have to remind your bride about submission... You have to open up Colossians chapter 3 to her, Ephesians 5, and remind her you have already in some way failed to love her because she does not want to follow you. There's something broken with you in this marriage. So don't be demanding that. I know I've premarital premarital counseled people and married counseled people. I remember one couple came to me. They weren't married yet. And all you want to talk about for the first three lessons was submission. Want her to understand. Now, mind you, won't even tell me how many marriages he's had before that. I will say I didn't marry them. However, I reminded him, look, buddy, submission is the last thing we should be talking about right now. Submission is not the trump card you pull out anytime you want your way. There may be a time for you to have to play the headship card. I understand that. But that's a once every 20 year maybe thing and it has nothing to do with attitude in your relationship. It may be a very difficult financial decision, a unique particular decision that you have to go, you know what, hon? We're going to go this direction. I don't agree. I understand. But I'm responsible and I'm going. And I want you to follow me. Maybe once every 10 years. Maybe. But you throw that card down all the time, forget it. Forget it. Something's broken. Something needs to change in your heart and obviously hers as well. So I'm going to give you five things of what head ch- or, or submission looks like, ladies. And I want you to listen. And I pray that you don't shoot the messenger. But if you do, know that I love you and I'm trying to speak the word of God. So here we go. First of all, follow your husband's leadership. And Ephesians 5 says, in all things. Not just in the things you want. Now, that doesn't mean your husband does every single thing there is to do in your family. But it does mean you do let him lead. And you don't try to usurp or rob that privilege and opportunity and responsibility from him. At the same time, Christ-like submission is not mindless obedience. Doesn't mean that everything he says, I have to do. Without doubt, you are not to follow him when he leads you into sin. You are not to follow him when he leads you into sin. And there is somewhat of an assumption there that in a healthy marriage, in a healthy marriage, in a healthy relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, there is an assumption that you actually understand what it means to be one flesh. You actually understand that when you make decisions, you make actions, it affects someone else because you are bound together in a spiritual way and a physical way, obviously. But 
there's an assumption that as that one flesh is, you are seeking wisdom together. You are counseling one another. You are not making decisions independently. I cannot remember a decision, a major decision that I have ever made apart from my wife. I think that's the stupidest thing you can do. Why? Because God gave her to me to help me not make stupid decisions. And I grant it, I believe my wife is a gift of wisdom. She has a lot of discernment. She helps me to think of things I have not thought. But she allows me to lead. Even if it is into a place where she doesn't necessarily think we should go. Know that, ladies, for your family, for your decisions, God holds him responsible. That's a lot of weight. When he's going to come calling about the Ford family, he's going to ask for Sam. And know that it's not that you can't lead, right? It's not that you're not capable. My wife and other women I know are very capable leaders. They are gifted in leadership. They have incredible uh, wisdom and discernment, teaching abilities. It's not that you can't lead in the marriage relationship. It's that you're not meant to. You're not meant to. doesn't mean you don't lead anywhere else. I'm just talking about the marriage relationship. I like that Peter talks about the weaker vessel. And, and, and again, oh, I'm a weaker vessel. Think of it as Doug Wilson talks about it, the difference between a hammer and a teacup. You're not going to nail in a nail with a teacup, and you're not going to drink tea out of a hammer. Right? But they're both very special, both very necessary, both very unique. Let him lead. And if you're wondering, like, I, I, I let him lead. I, I follow. Here's a great way to figure out if you do or not. Ask your kids. Ask your kids. I did that last night. My son and I were in the kitchen by ourselves. I said, Fisher, I got a question for you. He's 10 years old. His conversations are just getting more and more enjoyable, though he's asking me stuff that I don't know the answers to. and I have to kind of fake him out until I know the answer. So he, uh, I said, son, um, I have a difficult sermon tomorrow. He's like, really? What's it about? I said, well, it's about husbands leading their wives. He's like, oh, okay. I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, so who's the leader of our home? And I said, don't give me the answer you think I want to hear. I really want to know who's the leader of our home, do you think, by what you see, what you hear. He said, oh, Dad, oh, oh, you're, you're, you're definitely the leader of the home. It's like, oh. you know, thank, praise Jesus. Okay, so, but I, you know, Kids will tell you things. I said, what do you mean by that? And so I asked him. I said, how do you know that I love your mom? And he talked about things. I said, how do you know she respects me? Talked about things. And it was very insightful. Some stuff, honestly, was what caught me. But then I started talking to him like, let's talk about your future wife. What are you going to look for in a wife? Incredible conversations. Ask your kids. They know. They know who rules the home. They know who rules the family. They know who's calling the shots. They know when things get hard, who is going to lead them out of it. Be careful asking that question because you may not like the answer, but be humble. Be humble. Pray for your husband's leadership. Second thing, pray. The best way to pray for his leadership is to pray for his relationship with God. Because here's the temptation, right? Sinful flesh starts attacking us. Here's where it goes. He will lead like Christ when he is led by Christ. So your prayer is not that he will make certain decisions. Oh Lord, I know that this is your will for us. So let him decide this. Or let him lead us here. Or let us not do this. Okay, It's not evil or, or sinful to pray that. But that should not be the primary reason for your prayer. Your prayer is this. That he will receive strength and courage to do what God's Word says. That's your prayer. And trust that God will answer it. And if He is not leading now, because a lot of you, I know women are thinking, well, He is not leading. He is not my spiritual leader. He is not guiding me. He's not. Pray for Him. Pray for His leadership. And when He starts to lead, when He takes those steps, pray for His leadership. And when He stops doing that, Pray for his leadership. 
pray for him, pray for him, pray for him. Third thing, and I think most importantly, is encourage his leadership. Encourage your husband's leadership in word and deed. Um, encourage your husband as an ally and an adversary. Um, culture has already made him a, a juvenile, if you will, like an extra kid that uh, doesn't, can't think for himself and is kind of stumbling over himself. Um, he already believes that the world is against him. He already has self-doubt that he feels incapable, that he feels incompetent, that he's not measuring up. He already feels those things, but you can help him think differently. And only you can in this relationship. Only you can. My wife, by God's grace, I, she, she's an encourager. I am not an encourager. I'm really bad at it. And she is helping me to become better at it. And it's not an excuse. It's an honest, I need to work on it. But she's an encouragement. And so she will say things to me at times that are hugely powerful. And she may not even know this. Maybe she does. And she's just being that loving to me. But she'll say stuff like, you know what? You're just an awesome dad. I can't tell you what that feels like. And I know some of you men have never heard that. Or, you're an awesome husband. And I really wanted to go, like, really? Like, you want to tell me, like, what, like what's awesome? Like, you know, give me a couple of other things. But she doesn't have to, and I really don't want her to. Just that's enough to just, it just feeds my soul. It helps me to actually believe that she believes in me. That actually believes when I'm charging the hill, man, everyone else may just go, that guy's a nut job. He doesn't know where he's going. But she's like, I'm here, honey. I'm here with you no matter what. We could lose it all, and I'm, I'm behind you. And I can't tell you how much strength and courage that gives me to lead when she says, no, you can do it. And we're, we're going to be, I don't know how we're going to afford it. I don't know. We'll figure it out. You can do it, though. We're going to do it together. It's an encouragement. And I just, ladies, I ask you, to, to, if this is difficult for you, to fight it and open your mouth and encourage him as a husband. And encourage him as a father. And encourage him as a man. You don't have to go overboard. It could be very small, subtle things. And I would encourage you to do it even if you don't fully believe it yet. That's a sacrifice. That's difficult. That's grace. Doing it when he hasn't earned it, hasn't deserved it, doesn't expect it. And I'm telling you to be transformational to your marriage. Find ways to build him up. And however he will receive it, especially when you don't feel like he deserves it, knowing that it will encourage him. And he'll be a better leader because of it. Last couple. Respect his leadership. Uh, this is both private and public. You can, just as you can think in your mind, like, I'm going to be a very compassionate person and never actually show compassion, you can have respect for somebody and never actually show it um, or think you do and never show it. So I, I would argue or, or encourage you to speak highly of him especially when he makes a bad decision. See, the tendency is to get together with your gal pals. Let me tell you what my husband did. Now, there are times and places for that. I don't think you should never do that because I make dumb decisions, and I'm glad my wife has some confidence to go, yeah, he made a dumb decision, but let's pray for him together, right? So I understand that it's not never, ever talk about, but there is a level of respect that must always be maintained. He must always be elevated. You must seek ways to honor him as the leader, especially in front of your children. They need to see it. They need to taste it and feel it. Because you are teaching them what it means to be a godly woman, what it means to be a godly husband, a godly mother, a godly father. You're teaching them by how you act. So your children need to see it. Your family needs to see it. Your friends need to see it. The church needs to see it. Respect for his husbandship, if you will. And again, you don't have to wait until he does something glaringly, obviously respectable in order to have a disposition of respect toward him, even if that just means your silence. He needs to actually feel respected. He's wired to feel respected just as you're wired to feel loved. And if you're unsure what this looks like, if you're unsure what it means to be respectable, just as... I'm going to encourage them next week, like, 
You think you're loving to your wife. You have your list of things that say, look, this is how all the ways I love my wife, and yet your wife feels unloved. Something's lost in translation. Well, something sometimes gets lost in translation with respect. And you're like, well, I'm respectable. I've done this. Why don't you ask him? I dare you. Triple dog dare you, right? Ask him. Do you feel respected? Do you feel respected by me? My wife has asked me that question, and um, it's been an interesting, sometimes colorful conversation. 99% of the time, I'm like, oh, yeah, yes, you do. And other times, you're like, we need to talk. Ask him. It might surprise you. And lastly, I know I said encouragement was most important, but I actually think this one is. And ladies, this is where you, you live in your responsibility that God has given you. You need to help your husband's leadership. You need to help your husband's leadership. Um, Although you are equal, as we said before, God, you are his helpmate, your helper. You are God's gift to him to make him what he can't be by himself. God has brought your personality, your experiences, all that you are, in to complement one another, not to compete. And so I want you to understand that as a woman, as a wife, submission does not mean silence. It does not mean silence. It does not mean I'm just going to do whatever you say and obey and that's it. All sanctification, I've already said, is relational. And the most powerful, intimate relationship one has is in a marriage. And for a bride, there's two ditches that your flesh will lead you into. Silence or nagging. Proverbs has a lot to say about the dripping faucet of a nagging wife. And how... Terrible. Better to have her on the corner, sit on a corner of a rooftop and live with a nagging wife. Okay? Just because I said, you don't be silent, doesn't mean you correct, you correct, you correct, you correct, correct. I challenged men at this at the men's retreat. When a wife comes to you and says, how do I look in this outfit? Most men go, what do I do? What do I do? She looks terrible. I don't know what to say. I don't I lie to her. No, you tell the truth, but here's how you can. If that moment she asks you, do I look beautiful, is the only time you're ever talking about that she is beautiful, yeah, you're in trouble. But if you built in this constant rhythm of your beauty, I appreciate you. Man, you look snapping hot right now in that. And on, when she asks you, you say, well, that's okay. She's not hurt at all. Same as with respect. If you correct Correct, correct. He is constantly going to feel like you're his mom or his teacher. And the moment he, you show, well, I, I respect you, that's going to be falling on dead, deaf ears. You need to help him and encourage him. All these pieces go together that you might have the opportunity to speak truth with him. My wife is phenomenal at it, and I hate it. Okay? Now, she says the most piercing Knife, jujitsu, discernment things. It's like, oh my gosh. And it is good and it is truthful, but it's painful. She's not saying it in a hateful way. She says it in a gentle way, but she's the only one who knows me better than anyone. I have now on this planet spent more time with her than my own family or anybody else. She knows me. And she comes, she says, you know what, hon? Got something to talk about. Oh gosh, what I do? And I know, I say that because I know she's going to speak truth. And God wants her to speak truth. God intended for her to sanctify me and to grow me and to help me be better. To be a better Sam, if you will. To honor God more. To reveal Christ more. She's been placed, and I for her. I appreciate that. So wives, you need to help your husbands. You do need to speak truth in their lives. You do need to help them. Alright. We'll close it out. Know that this, ladies, uh, submitting to a husband is made one heck of a lot easier when men actually lead. And it is true that a ton of husbands have done little to deserve the devotion of a godly wife, but know this, and if you hear nothing, hear this. True Christ-centered womanhood. Christ-centered wifery, if you will, is not just a response to whatever some sinful man can offer 
through good or bad leadership or from a worthy or unworthy example. Christ-centered womanhood is rooted in a personal commitment to Jesus as Lord and a desire to live in the fullness of His design. I'd be careful to read 1 Peter 3, which says this in the first couple of verses, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word. I know a lot of you are thinking that. Look, my husband doesn't do this. He doesn't spiritually lead our home. He doesn't obey God. He doesn't love Jesus. Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. A true gospel-centered woman doesn't abandon her biblical wifery when he abandons his biblical husbandry. She fights to put on Christ, to obey today. We worry about tomorrow. To obey today out of a desire to glorify God through living the way God has designed you and empowered you to be. We are responsible for our response to God's truth and no one else's. But that's difficult for all of us. Because much like our first parents, when God came into the garden after the fall and we found ourselves caught in sin, God says, what have you done? As if he doesn't know. And we often, in response, want to point to another person, want to point to some particular circumstance that makes it just too hard, or some past experience, not just as a cause for why we are the way we are, but as an excuse. It's not an excuse. And I will say, Ladies, submission and love for men, which we'll talk about next week. But submission looks and feels and sounds difficult to someone devoted to their own glory. If you are devoted to your own glory, I understand how submission is difficult and hard. But wives, you are to respect your husbands and submit to his leadership not based on his merits, but on Christ's. That's the motivation. So as we come to the table today, for those who are married, for those who are not yet married, especially for those wives, though, as we come to the table, confess your brokenness. Admit that you need Christ. Admit that you fall short. Newsflash, you always will and depend upon Him to empower you to love sin less and to love Him more and to live as you ought to live, to be everything you are to be, to actually believe with the conviction of your heart that the fullness of all that's supposed to be in life exists in the way He designed things. That's a spirit-led endeavor, I believe, and we'll pray that that happens for all of us.